Hello everyone and welcome to Manufacturing the Future. Today we're talking about the challenges facing American manufacturing in 2021 and beyond. Joining me is MIT political scientist Suzanne Berger. Professor Berger was a member of the MIT Task Force on Work of the Future from 2018 to 2020 and led the research group that studied advanced technology in manufacturing. She co-chaired the MIT Production and the Innovation Economy research team and wrote Making in America from Innovation to Market in 2013 and How We Compete in 2005. And she participated in the 1989 Made in America project at MIT. She's been elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and has received the Légion d'honneur from the French government. Suzanne, welcome to the show. Thanks, I'm glad to be here. At the MIT Task Force on Work of the Future, you led a team that produced a research brief called Manufacturing in America, A View from the Field. Uh, you used an interesting and different methodology compared to most research reports of this type. You went out and you talked to manufacturers. Tell me about that methodology. Well, uh, you know, a lot of the predictions about robots uh, eating our jobs were made by people who actually don't seem ever to have been in a factory. What they did was they took the robots and tried to figure out what they could do and matched them up with occupations and tasks. And from that, they predicted how many robots were going to be eating how many jobs. And we did something quite different. We went into factories and did a kind of bottom-up study. We asked the owners and managers of the plants what they see as their options. And we asked them one simple question. And that question was, what kind of technologies have you introduced in the plant over the last five years and whatever happened to Joe, who used to do that job uh, before the robot came in? Now, that's an interesting approach. Is It's um, the mass media, uh, in popular culture, robotics automation are assumed to be a, a job killer. It's uh, yeah, the idea we bring robots in and that we create mass unemployment. Uh, the experience in Asia and Europe has not been that way. Can you tell me about that, that dichotomy? How did that happen? Well, um, I mean, again, I think it was a kind of deductive approach. Uh, take a robot, figure out what the robot could uh, hypothetically do, and then match it up with tasks on paper. But the fact is, and what was really amazing to us was, when we went back to companies we had visited previously in Ohio, Massachusetts, Arizona, uh, in a previous study, we found practically no robots. So if the robots are gonna be eating up manufacturing jobs over the next five to 10 years, they better get going because they're not there now. And in fact, I think the problem is quite a different problem. It's that the small and medium-sized uh, manufacturing companies are still companies that make very little use of advanced technology. And when they do buy a new machine, new technology, they simply add it on top of the old machines they already have there. Why we visited an excellent plant in, in, in uh, Cleveland, Ohio, uh, where the owner, a, a plant that was doing really well, the owner showed us with pride the uh, milling machines that his father and grandfather had purchased in the 1940s and standing right next to them, some new CNC machines. Now, that's interesting. Now, we've, uh, uh, I've seen that 
I, you know, coming from that environment uh, in SMEs, large, large firms, automakers, for example, when they retool, uh, they are not adverse to using a bulldozer. They will clean a factory out to the walls and they'll, they'll redesign from the ground up with the latest technology. So much so, in fact, that they can have difficulty finding legacy equipment if they need to for, for various reasons. Yet we see the opposite in SMEs. Uh, automation technology is affordable now. It is possible to purchase a general purpose robot for the price of a CNC machine or even less. So it seems to me that it's it cost, or at least capital cost, is, is that really a factor here? Or is this strictly a matter of attitudes? No, I, I think there are things that are still real obstacles. I mean, first of all, uh, robots are really not very flexible yet. And the cost of a robot is only 25% of the cost of integrating the robot into the plant. You've got to figure out how to get things to the robot and how to get things away from the robot. And so uh, even the robotics manufacturers are, uh, agree that the integration of the robot is about 75% of, of the total cost. And then there's the fact that these companies, uh, the suppliers that are SMEs, uh, they work with lots of different customers. And so basically they are high mix, low volume uh, manufacturers. And so the mesh between what they're doing and uh, what the state of automation is, there's still not a perfect or a very good fit here. Now, that high mix, low volume environment, now, uh, we've been told for, for about a decade now that that is the future of all manufacturing. Uh, ultimately, uh, consumer goods, all products will be so customized ultimately that, that your production run may be a unit, a, a lot of one. And that we have to find a way to, to, to build margins into that kind of world. Now, the, the automation suppliers told us that this is a perfect fit for robotics. So those things seem to be in direct conflict. Well, our, our colleagues in the MIT Robotics Lab who participated with us on the project, they acknowledge that robots aren't there yet. Uh, uh, the gripping, um, the, um, the, all the safety measures for interaction with human beings, these are really still being worked out. And so I think the automation is really not quite there yet. But there are other factors really holding people back here or two. When, when we did see somebody buying a new piece of equipment, uh, it usually was because they had some contract in hand. And the pattern that we saw really was you get a new contract or you see that you could get a new customer if only you had a new piece of equipment. And that's when people buy new equipment. Uh, and in fact, it's only at that point that people realize they need new skills. And it's only when people have new equipment that they actually are interested in hiring skilled workers. And that's a big problem. That's a fascinating approach because um, one would think that normally you would sell into a market based on capability you have. And that traditionally one would think that, that a mark in-house marketing team would say, we need more capability, give me something to sell. You're talking about a world which is exactly the opposite, where essentially we go and we make the sale and then we backfill or we then remedially attempt to build the capability to fill that order. I mean, is that an efficient way to run manufacturing? Well, I mean, I think it's that people see an opportunity. Or in the case of the SMEs in the United States, we discovered that about half of the companies that we interviewed in had had at least one defense contract in the preceding uh, 10 years, at least one. And the Defense Department often is the contract that allows somebody 
go out and buy new equipment. I'll give you the example of one company that I thought was fascinating. This was a company that um, uh, where the, uh, the owner's uh, grandfather created it. They made industrial boilers. And that's what they did uh, from the, in, until the Iraq war. And when the Iraq war broke out, it turned out that there were very few companies that made steel uh, plates of the right dimensions for armoring the Humvees that were being blown up. And this company could. So this was their first experience in defense contracting. And that has really, now that's a big part of their business. Well, the Navy, a couple of years ago, told them, we want robotic welding. We want robotic welds. So there was the, the possibility of a contract. And so they bought. That led to the purchase of a robotic weld, uh, a, 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 a welding robot. And then they asked themselves, well, who can work this thing? And at that point, they had to think about getting the skills. And so that's the pattern that we've seen over and over again. Now, the skills gap comes up again and again these days. Uh, it's it's pre-COVID, even more so during COVID. And one thing that, that struck me about your report is, is how often it seemed that SMEs are actually acquiring other companies for the purpose of acquiring their talent pool, which is not the way you'd normally think of a rationale for doing an acquisition. Well, uh, that's in the case of people who really are uh, pushing ahead on the technology front. But I think that most companies are sort of slower on that front. And I, I really think there's a lot to question about this argument on the skills gap, actually. When we asked companies, uh, when they're hiring, what are they looking for? I would say that in the majority of cases, the answer was somebody who'll come on time, somebody who will stay with the company. Uh, again and again, that's what we heard. And we heard lots of criticism of the community colleges and training. You know, they're training people to work on 3D. They're training people to work on robots. That isn't the kind of person we need. Somebody who'll come on time. Somebody will show up. And it's so I think if we have a big training program, if we invest very heavily in training, but we don't upscale the technology in these firms, it's gonna be a case of we build it, but will anybody actually come? <laughs> and uh, so I think we need to start on the upgrading of the technology side and then build skills out of that. That's fascinating. You're talking about soft skills, which really are not unique to manufacturing. They're, 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 they're true of, of business in general, more than those specific technical skills. So it, it's, you're describing a disconnect in the things that we're teaching uh, potential employees in community college and a um, uh, perhaps a generational shift in the way that, that, that those employees look at work. Is there something that manufacturers, SMEs in particular, need to do to change the nature of the work itself to, to make it more attractive or to make it fit better with, with these new expectations? Well, first of all, I think um, people people need to be paid a reasonable wage. And if you're paying $11 an hour and uh, you're expecting people to turn up on time and all the rest, they're not going to be highly motivated. There's a snowstorm. Their kids are sick and home. I mean, you know, it's uh, so I think the whole system needs to be upgraded. And uh, we need to start really on the technology side. And that will push a desire. And we've seen cases 
In fact, where firms realize this, and what they start doing is uh, upgrading and actually offering better wages. And lo and behold, this whole question of absenteeism and show up on time seems to just solve itself at that point. Um, so the question is, how could firms offer a better wage? Well, in fact, they need to be more productive if they're going to offer a higher wage. And that means, in fact, upgrading the technology. So it's a fascinating chicken and egg situation because so often I've heard that I would love to pay my people more, but I can't afford it. I don't have the margins built in to do that. Similarly, often they say, well, you know, I, I don't have that CapEx available to make that big purchase to, to go into automation. So that uh, traditionally, uh, that sounds to me like a death spiral for a firm, yet so many firms are locked in it. The low tech, low skill, low wage trap. That's where we're stuck, I think, in the United States in much of SME manufacturing. We're stuck in a kind of low-end equilibrium. And I think that in order to get out of that, we need to do some of what we did in the United States right after, during the war, uh, World War II, and afterwards. And that is have the Defense Department willing to uh, actually lease some of the new equipment, uh, provide credits for acquiring things like robots and 3D printing. We need to give a big push on the side of capital equipment. And, uh, and, and of course, uh, try to upgrade the skills. So, but in a sense, we've been pushing on the skills side, but I really wonder uh, you know, whether these uh, kids are gonna go out and find the jobs unless we can actually uh, improve the, the, the level of technology in the firms. That's an interesting approach. It's so if military contracts uh, operate as sort of a demand pull mechanism that sort of drag SMEs into higher technology, could you use those same dollars or part of those same dollars and go the other way around and make a supply push system and perhaps as a way of, of a subsidy to get them to invest in technology that they don't know that they need right now, but they actually do? Yes, they actually do. And I, I mean, I think defense, I was very surprised. This is not something I ever anticipated finding that so many of the SMEs have at least some defense contracting. And so I think we do have a big lever out there on the side of government and that, um, uh, the, that this lever could be used both to ask the, the prime contractors to push their suppliers, to work with their suppliers, to upgrade their technology. I mean, we know um, that our, tech, our productivity in manufacturing is poor compared to other advanced industrial countries. Uh, we know that in fact, the productivity of the SMEs is even uh, more stagnant uh, than the big companies. So this is, I think, where we really need to focus attention. Is there a demographic factor at play with SMEs? Uh, I mean, we've, we, we've, both, we've both seen manufacturing operations globally, and intrinsically, I don't see a fundamental difference in upper-level management between European or Asian or, or American managers in, in attitude or capability or, or training, but the, there is that gap somehow down there. Is, is there something about, is there, are there just too many people that look like me running SMEs to, to really drag this in the future? No, I don't think so. I, I, I think there's a real, a real difference between what's going on in the United States and what happens in German manufacturing, for example. And a German manufacturer who gets a good new idea, uh, let's say a company that I visited uh, that was making machine tools for the auto industry, 
And he realized that probably it wasn't a great idea to be so focused on one industry. And at a trade show, he saw somebody rather who was making machine tools for artificial hips. So he thought, you know, that isn't so different from the kind of stuff I'm doing. Maybe I could work on artificial knees, machine tools for artificial knees. And so he was able to go back to the plant. He was able to talk to a local banker. This was a family-owned business. They'd been working with that banker for years. So the banker knew the company. Went, we don't even have local banks in the United States anymore. It's Bank of America all over the place. Um, he was able to participate in a research consortium that the government on medical devices that the government funded for 50%. He was able to uh, um, get very highly skilled workers uh, through the apprenticeship system that the Germans have. So what, I mean, the general point here is he was operating in an ecosystem where he was able to get resources that he could join to his own capabilities and the skills he had in pocket himself. Whereas our people, all they have is what's in their own pockets. Our ecosystem is a desert out there. Well, I think that's the real difference between the systems. And people talk a lot about the German Fraunhofer uh, system, but that's just one piece of the German ecosystem. I think that's what we really need to do is build up in this country those capabilities. And certainly the Manufacturing Innovation Institutes that were set up in the Obama administration and that have continued, that's one piece that's certainly a, a good start in that direction. But as you know, they don't work very much with SMEs. It's, you mentioned that, that, that aspect of training, which, which, which interests me considerably, and that is in that German model, for example, um, a very sharp young assembly line worker who has good, good mathematical skills, shows real aptitude, uh, can, stay on the job and study and become an engineer. And a truly great engineer because of course they have literal hands-on line experience. Here we bifurcate our training program. Uh, as, as a young man, I had to leave my job in an auto parts plant as a millwright to go to study metallurgy because it's either or, it's, it's never both. It's, it's, I, is that a factor? If we move to a model like that in America, if we had a system where essentially we could, we could encourage people to, to leave the line, study part-time on a co-op basis, stay employed, is this, could we just build a better sort of type of, of technician, engineer? Absolutely, I think that kind of program would really, a kind of apprenticeship program where you're both working hands-on experience and also studying and where you could really advance, uh, I mean, uh, advance in the plant uh, to becoming a technician and, and, and an engineer. I mean, I think people argue that, uh, that, that, that people don't want to go into manufacturing because it's dirty, dull, uh, difficult, dangerous, whatever. I don't believe that's really true. I think people like, many people like working with their hands, but we've, we need to have uh, you know, a future. You need to be able to see that you could advance in a job like that. You need to be paid decent wages. So I think it's not the nature of the work. In fact, I think a lot of people really like doing things like that. It's that they're jobs that are dead-end jobs with low wages, and nobody is too interested in that kind of a job. Suzanne, do SME managers, is it, 
how serious are they about in-house training? I know that it's the smaller the firm, the less likely they are to have a formalized in-house training program. And I hear many complaints about how the, the current education system doesn't prepare workers for, for the kinds of, uh, give them the kinds of skills that I need uh, on the job. Is at, at what point are, are manufacturing managers going to have to take the bull by the horns and simply uh, accept the fact that I'm going to have to teach this in the workshop because it's not going to come off the street no matter how much I try. Well, I do think that um, uh, that in some places we see manufacturers getting together uh, to try to support uh, training programs. So there's a wonderful example in Ohio of uh, an association uh, that was created by people uh, by uh, companies in metalworking, uh, where actually the company is not only supporting classes in the community college, but this association is actually people are actually coming from the companies to do some of the teaching uh, in order to align the needs of the companies in the association, the AWT association, uh, uh, together uh, with the class materials that their workers are being taught. And they're giving their workers time off to go uh, actually uh, take, the, take the classes. So I think getting manufacturers together to be sure that they are actually aligning their needs with the classes that are being taught in the, uh, in the community colleges. I mean, there's a great example in Rochester. Uh, we used to have um, Kodak, used to have lots of apprenticeships uh, when Kodak was still a big and thriving company. And many of those uh, Kodak workers eventually filtered through, uh, through the manufacturing ecosystem. When Kodak went down, no more apprenticeships, Kodak used to support a class in community colleges. No more is Kodak support for that. And so there are a lot of small, very world-class optics companies in Rochester, but no one of them was uh, strong enough or big enough to be able to support a, a, a class. But when they actually got together, they were able to support this in the community college. How do we actually convene and get the manufacturers to work together to support this type of program. So much to talk about, so many issues. We could we could go on for hours about this. We're, I see by the clock on the wall, we're, we're just running out of time. Uh, Suzanne, if there's a single policy initiative that you could generate, that you could, you could, you could suggest that you could sort of ramrod through the new administration coming in that would help SMEs get on track and become globally competitive, what would that be? It would be to support the acquisition of, um, of advanced technologies and SMEs. That, because I believe with that push, we would then be able to make uh, a lot of the rest, like training of workers training and skills, uh, a, lot more, uh, a lot more possible. Professor Suzanne Berger, MIT, lead author of Manufacturing in America, A View from the Field. Thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you very much. Bye. And thank you for watching today's episode of Manufacturing the Future. See you next time.